0: Well, hey, Center Church. I hope you've had a good weekend. Um, obviously, this is a very different Sunday than we anticipated. And like you, I've been, you know, scrolling social media and reading news alerts, and I have a lot of questions about the coronavirus. Um, our leadership team kept a really close eye on all the releases coming from government organizations, and at the end of the day, decided it would be most prudent to not gather together this weekend, March 15th, for worship, but instead to encourage you to meet with your missional communities, to be able to still enjoy some of the benefits of gathering together uh, while also um, not having to come together all as one big church. So I'm recording this uh, Saturday morning at our Cascadia campus, which is Patrick's basement, and have a very dedicated crew of three people here to listen to me. Because we all know that when two or three are gathered together, there Jesus is with us. So if one of them leaves midway through this, the Holy Spirit will leave. No, I'm just kidding. Don't, don't get freaked out by that. Uh, but man, we don't know how long uh, this whole situation is going to last. And so we're going to take it week by week. And uh, the, the way that we're going to communicate with the church is through our normal channels. So keep an eye on your email, keep an eye on our website, our social media accounts. And we're going to work really hard to keep you up to date on kind of the latest and greatest from Center Church. Um, something I want to encourage you with that I've been encouraged by this week, as I've thought through this, is uh, the story of Acts chapter eight, which we're actually going to come to next week in our series in Acts. And here's sort of the the basic thrust of that story: um, the church has been growing and healthy and multiplying for six chapters in Acts, and then in chapters seven and eight, this huge persecution breaks out. So. Uh, We're going to have our story today of Stephen, who was the first martyr. And then after that, it says that all of the church was scattered across Judea and Samaria. The only people that weren't scattered out of Jerusalem were the apostles. And you would think that that would be a huge blow to the growth of the church. You've got these spirit-empowered leaders who are in Jerusalem, but then everybody else has been scattered out in these smaller groups around the country. But what's amazing is that in Acts chapter 8, verse 4, it says that those who were scattered went about preaching the word. And so what happened is that Satan came at the church with persecution, hoping to destroy the church and not let it get out of its infancy in Jerusalem. But sort of like a judo master, God took Satan's strength and his power, and he actually turned it against him. And he actually calls that to be the means by which the church went beyond Jerusalem and actually started to accomplish the second part of Acts chapter one, verse eight, where Jesus said, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and Samaria. So God used what seemed to be a destructive thing, which certainly was a destructive thing, and he turned it towards his purposes. And that's what I'm praying for this whole situation. That's what I'd encourage you to pray, that as we wrestle with the realities of this worldwide pandemic, as we pray that scientists and doctors and policymakers would have wisdom and that we'd be able to curtail this disease, as we pray that God would heal those that are sick, as God would protect uh, others from getting this disease, that at the same time, we would remember that God is enthroned that God is not surprised by this, that God is not startled by this, and that throughout the history of the church, God has used chaotic pandemic events to actually lay the seedbed for revival to lay the seedbed for revival. So I'm praying that this might actually be the means by which a lot of people in our community and around the world stop and take notice of their spiritual lives. And maybe are forced to take a breath, they can't go to work, They, they can't go to kids sporting events, they all of a sudden have a lot of time on their hands, and they just start to think about life and death and eternity and what really matters. And I'm praying that God would use this to shake our sense of security in this world, to shake our sense of security in material goods or in our own ability to protect ourselves and would lead us to say, Lord, we need something stronger than ourselves. We need a rock that we can stand on that is firmer than the economy, that is firmer than our health, that is firmer than our 401k plans. So I would just invite you to pray that with me over the next couple of weeks as we try to figure out how long it'll be until we, we can gather together. And I would just invite you to stand with me in faith and not fear. The people of God have always been called to stand by faith and to stand with poise and peace when the world is in chaos around us. And in many ways, we're going to see today, that's one of our most powerful witnesses to the world. When everybody else is freaking out, when everything else seems like it's, it's chaotic, the people of God throughout history have had this unique ability to stand firm and with poise because our hope isn't in this world. But as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, if in Christ our hope is in this life alone, we are most to be pitied. But the good news of the gospel is that our hope is not just in this life alone, but our hope is that we have a savior that goes beyond this world no matter what happens. And so a couple of practical things and then I'm going to pray and I'm going to invite you to pray with us and then we'll transition into our text today. Um, We are going to take it week by week when it comes to gathering together as a congregation. We're going to try to be wise and prudent and sensitive and so please keep an eye on those various communication channels that we have. Um, At this point, we are going to encourage you if you're healthy and able-bodied to continue meeting together with your missional community. I think that missional communities are going to be more important maybe than ever for us because we aren't currently meeting in in a big group and because we are living in a very chaotic season. We need community to help us stand firm. We need one another to remind us of the promises of God. So if you feel comfortable with your healthy and able-bodied, I'd say please keep meeting with your missional communities. Everything that has come out from government organizations says it's, it's completely safe and responsible uh, to meet in smaller groups. I'd encourage you to keep doing that. Um, And if if you're a person who just is uncomfortable gathering together with your missional community right now, I totally understand that. We love you. We're praying for you. And I would just encourage you to stay engaged in every possible way uh, that you have available. So one of the the good things about the 21st century is we have a lot of technology. We can communicate easily and effectively. So stay engaged on your your group message. Stay engaged through our worship at home guides. We're going to work really hard to stay in constant contact with you uh, through this process. So with all those sort of practical things said, I'd just love for you to join me uh, in praying. So with your missional community or you know, by yourself, whether it's Sunday or Monday or some other day, if you would just man, join me in praying for us, our community, and kind of our world in the midst of the season, and then we'll transition into the sermon for today. So let's pray. Father God, we confess that you are high and exalted. You are almighty and nothing uh, is surprising or nothing is startling to you. But God, we confess that we are not. God, that we're limited creatures, that we are prone to anxiety and fear. So, God, we just ask that you would fill us with faith in this season, fill us with a holy confidence that comes from knowing that we have uh, the, the protection, the provision, and the love of Almighty God. Lord, I pray for our community that as the world shakes, that they would be drawn to an unshakable foundation that they can find in Christ. Lord, we pray for doctors and we pray for scientists and policymakers and government officials that you'd give them wisdom and discernment. You'd give them energy and focus to make decisions to curtail this disease and to and to protect Uh, the people that you've given them to oversee. God, we pray for those that are suffering and sick with this disease, that you'd heal them and give them relief. And we pray, Lord, that you would stop this. We pray that you would stop this disease and and stop the suffering of so many. And God, we just pray for us individually and as a church, in the midst of a chaotic time, that you would empower us to be full of poise and full of peace because we have a hope that goes beyond this world. Uh, So God, give us all that we need because you are sufficient. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Well, if you have a Bible, you can type to return to Acts chapter 7. So we're going to be in Acts chapter 7 today. A few weeks ago, uh, as you may know, we started a series in the book of Acts called People Like You Empowered by Him. And the big idea of this series is that in the beginning, God empowered ordinary people just like you and me to build his church, and that that is still the normative way that he builds his church today. That it's not through famous super Christians that God does most of his work, but it's through ordinary Christians like you and me empowered by his spirit. So we've been meeting some of these people in the the book of Acts that God has empowered in the early church, and we've been learning from their lives and how, how God empowered them. He also wants to empower us. Well, the title of today's sermon is Empowered to Stand Firm, Empowered to Stand Firm. And this is a timely sermon for us because over the last week, we've been reminded just how shakable our world is, just how chaotic things can get uh, quickly. So whether that's you're worried about getting sick, whether that's you're worried about your 401k tanking, or you're just worried about having enough toilet paper, right? Like There are plenty of things in our life right now to be anxious about. And in some ways, the world hasn't changed that much in 2,000 years. So when you look at the picture of the early church, you find that there was plenty for them to be anxious about. There were extraordinary challenges that they faced. But here's what's remarkable about our text today. The main character, Stephen, is going to face an extraordinarily frightening situation. He is going to face opposition. He's going to face anger. He's going to face rejection. And eventually, he's going to lay down his life for the sake of the gospel. But what's amazing is that we're going to see Stephen stand with courage, stand with poise, and stand with peace in the midst of a very challenging situation. You see, Stephen was empowered by God to stand firm, even though his situation was very challenging. And by looking at Stephen's life, we're going to learn how we can stand firm in challenging situations as well, whether that's you are feeling ostracized at work or at school or with your family because of your faith, or you're worried about the coronavirus, or you're worried about your 401k plan, or you're worried about relational dynamics or being single, whatever it is, we're going to find that you can stand firm and you can have the kind of courage and poise and peace that Stephen had if you grasp the two truths from this text that Stephen really seemed to grasp. Stephen illustrates in his speech and in his life two foundational truths of the Christian faith that if we grasp, enable us to stand firm in the midst of really challenging situations. And so what we're going to do is we're going to, I'm going to set a little bit of context, then we're going to jump into this chapter and learn those two truths, okay? So look at verse one with me. It says this, And the high priest said to Stephen, Are these things so? So we're jumping into the middle of an interaction that started back in Acts chapter 6. So let me take a second to kind of summarize what's happened so far. So Stephen is the main character of this chapter. Stephen is either speaking or being described in 57 of the 60 verses of this chapter. So what do we know about Stephen? What do we know about this main character? Well, we know that he was a member of the early church. Uh, We know that he was godly, that he was deeply engaged in ministry, and that he was probably young. So scholars think Stephen was probably in his mid to late 20s. So if Stephen were in our church today, he would be a young professional who led one of our missional communities, served on one of our Sunday morning volunteer teams, and regularly invited his co-workers and friends to church. And in Acts chapter 6, Stephen was preaching the gospel when all of a sudden a group of Greek-speaking Jews started to argue with him and dispute with him. But Stephen was a godly man, he was profoundly shaped by the scriptures, and he was empowered by the spirit. And so this group of Greek-speaking Jews found themselves unable to stand up to his wisdom and his authority. And so in, uh, in response to that, rather than trying to argue with him intellectually, they started to smear his character, and they, and they uh, stirred up a crowd, and they said, hey, Stephen, we heard this man, Stephen, speaking against the temple. He's threatening to destroy the temple. And they then had him brought before the council upon these charges. So in verse chapter one, the high priest, who was the leader of this council, which was a group of political and religious leaders in Jerusalem, asked Stephen if this accusation was true. So that's what he's saying. Are these things so? And in verse two, Stephen starts his response. But before we jump into Stephen's speech, I want to point something out. There's a little bit of an aside. Okay, I want to point something out. In many ways, Stephen is a picture of what God wants you to be. Stephen is a picture of what God wants you to be. Stephen was a young professional. Stephen was not a superhuman. He was a guy in his mid to late 20s with a career and a social life. But he was deeply invested in the mission of the church. He was profoundly shaped by the scriptures and he had a huge impact in his community. Look, if you are a college student or a young professional who is listening to me right now, hear this, God has this for you. God has this for you. God didn't save you to sit you until you were married with two kids and a mortgage. God wants to work through you and God wants you to use your time and your energy and your passion and your resources right now to make a huge impact in our community. Look, you have the potential to be extremely godly and extremely effective in evangelism and in discipleship. You have the potential to be like Stephen. Stephen was not an apostle. Stephen was not a prophet. Stephen was not some sort of superhuman Christian. Stephen was a guy. Stephen was a young professional with a job. And yet Stephen was used in profound ways in the early church. So here's my question. Is that your goal? Is that your goal? Is your goal to be like Stephen? Or is your goal to travel to hip cities and drink micro brews and meet your spouse? Right? Those aren't bad things. Those are all fine things. But God has something so much more for you than that. God has a purpose and a mission for your life that is so much better than just traveling to neat cities and drinking neat drinks and, and meeting your future spouse. God is calling you to leadership right now. It is not, it's, it's not time to coast until you're 35. It's not time to wait, figuring other people will lead. God is saying right now, it is time for you to lead. And real quick, if you're a college student and you're dispersed right now, and, and you can't be in Charleston, you find yourself at home, understand that this has happened under God's sovereign plan. So it's very possible. And I would say even likely that God has you there because he wants you to do ministry there. He wants you to engage with your friends that are all back at home with nothing to do, right? There's no sports to watch. There's nothing to do, right? So talk to them about the gospel, okay? He wants you to minister to your family. He wants you to be uniquely poised and peaceful as our world is in chaos, okay? So if you're a young professional, if you're a college student, recognize that Stephen was like you and you can be like Stephen through the power of God's spirit. All right, back to the text. So Stephen is standing before this council of religious leaders, and the main thing he's been accused of is threatening or disrespecting the temple. Okay, so that's the main charge that has been brought against him. And this is a very frightening situation because a threat against the temple was a crime punishable by capital punishment. You could be killed for threatening the temple. And this uh, group of men, this group of leaders had shown themselves willing to murder people. This is the same group of people that crucified Jesus. This is the same group of people that viciously beat the apostles. And there's this mob, this angry mob that has sort of forced Stephen into this situation. So this is an extremely tense, extremely frightening situation. And yet Stephen stood firm in the midst of it. Stephen was unmoved. Stephen, you'll find, was defined by extraordinary peace and courage and confidence in the midst of this terrifying situation. And the question is how? How was he able to do that when his life was so chaotic, when everything was falling to pieces? And the answer is because he believed two essential truths of the Christian faith that he illustrates in his response. If we're going to stand firm in the midst of challenging situations, whether that's the coronavirus, or whether that's being a Christian at work or at school, or whether that's things that happen in your life that are hard, if we're going to stand firm in our challenging situations, we have to believe these truths as well. So here's number one, if you're taking notes. Number one. No matter where you are, God is with you. No matter where you are, God is with you. Look at verse two with me. It says this, and Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. So Stephen was accused of disrespecting the temple. So why does he start by talking about Abraham? Why in his defense does he start by going all the way back and talking about Abraham, someone that all of these men knew plenty about? Right? Why did he do that? Well, to understand why, you need to know a little bit about first century Jews and how they revered the temple, Okay, how they thought about revered the temple. John Stott, an Anglican minister of the 20th century, put it this way, the Jews loved the temple. They conceived of God as so identified with the temple that its existence guaranteed his protection of them and its destruction meant his abandonment of them. So the average first century Jew associated the temple with God's very presence. In their minds, the temple was where God dwelt, which helps you understand why in John 2.21, the Jews got so mad at Jesus when he said this, destroy this temple? and in three days, I will raise it up. In their minds, Jesus was threatening the very presence of God. Jesus was threatening the very presence of God among his people. Now, is that what Jesus was saying? And is that what Stephen in this text was saying? Well, no. Jesus was saying that he would replace the temple as the way that people meet with God. But you have to understand how the Jews understood the temple and thought about the temple to know why they are so mad. You see, the Jews could not accept that the temple would be replaced because in their minds, God was connected to a building. God was connected to a building. God and the temple were almost synonymous. They wouldn't have said that theologically, but they felt that way emotionally. When I'm in the temple, God is with me. and When I'm not in the temple, God isn't with me, that sort of idea. Now, it's, it's easy for us today to say, oh, you know, those silly Jews, how could they possibly think that God was imprisoned in a building? But if I'm honest, I often do the same thing, right? So one example that comes to mind is when my wife and family uh, moved to Charlottesville to plant Center Church, right? Many of you may know that we used to live in Raleigh, Durham, North Carolina, which is a, a Bible Belt city. And I used to be a pastor at a very large megachurch, like 10,000 people. And when we moved to Charlottesville to plant this church, it felt so different. My neighbors in Charlottesville had a very different worldview than my neighbors did in Raleigh. And rather than being on staff at a large, successful, famous church, I was pastoring a group of people that met in my house. And I wouldn't have said it intellectually. I probably wouldn't have said it out loud. But here's how I felt. Is God here like he was in Raleigh? Is God's presence and power real? Is the gospel still the power of salvation to all who believe here in Charlottesville in a kind of progressive college town like it was in Raleigh-Durham at a large, successful, established megachurch? You see, I wouldn't have said it out loud, but emotionally, I was acting a whole lot like the first century Jews. Emotionally, I often struggle to really believe that God is with me no matter where I am. And I bet you felt similar things. I bet you felt similar things. How so? Well, if if you're gathering with your missional community on Sunday morning or if you think back to you know when we would gather as a congregation, it's probably very easy for you to identify as a Christian in the midst of a church service, right? Like you come in, man, you sing loudly, you raise your hands, you you listen to preaching, you take notes, you, Man, give money, you talk to people, maybe you serve on one of our volunteer teams. I mean, you could not be any more Christian, right? Like, I mean, you're kind of doing all the things to be a Christian on Sunday morning. You are as identified as a disciple of Jesus Christ as you could possibly be in that 90 minutes to to whatever. But I wonder if on Monday morning, when you interact with your classmates or with your coworkers with your neighbors, I wonder if it's harder for you to identify as a Christian. I wonder if you find yourself having a harder time to identify on Monday morning with the Christ that you identified with on Sunday morning. Now, why is that? If that's true for you, why is that? Is it because you stopped believing the gospel? No, I don't think so. Is it, is it because you were less empowered by the Holy Spirit? No, that's not true. It's because at an emotional level, you are probably a lot like me and a lot like these first century Jews. Even though we wouldn't say it out loud, we tend to believe that God is with us if we're at a church service, that God is with us if we're having our quiet time, that God is with us if we're in our missional community group, but God is not with us in quite the same way at work. He's not with us in quite the same way with our neighbors. He's not with us in quite the same way with our classmates. You see, in a lot of ways, emotionally, we do the same thing that the first century Jews do. We just do it in a little bit of a different way. We don't have a huge temple that took 46 years to build, but I think we often struggle with the same thing. But here's what Stephen understood, and here's what we see in Stephen's response. Stephen was so courageous. He was so poised, and he was so at peace in front of this council because he knew that no matter where he was, God was with him. He knew that no matter where he was, God was with him. He didn't have to walk you know, six blocks over to the temple to have God's presence. He had the presence of God dwelling within within him through the Holy Spirit. And because of that, he was empowered to stand firm. And for 51 verses, that is the message that Stephen is going to hammer home. He is going to hammer home that throughout all of Israel's history, the major figures of the people of God understood that God was not imprisoned in a building, but that God was with his people no matter where they are. So for the sake of time, I'm going to summarize a lot of the speech because it's a long chapter, but I'm going to hit the high point. So look back at verse two with me. It says this, brothers and fathers, the God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. So when God first appeared to Abraham, the father of the Jewish faith and the father of the Christian faith, it wasn't in a temple. It wasn't even in the Holy Land. It was when Abraham was living with his dad in Mesopotamia. And over the years, Abraham moved from place to place, and God continued to appear to him. So, you know, first in a place called Haran, then in a place called Canaan, then in Egypt, and finally back in Canaan. And what's interesting about Abraham's life, if you ever study, is that whenever he moves, he would always do two things. Whenever he settled in a new place, he would pitch a tent and he would build an altar. He would pitch a tent and he would build an altar. He would get his house in order, and then he would build a place to worship God. So in some ways, Abraham was the very first church planner, (laughs) right? He would build a place to worship God. Now, why did Abraham do that? Because Abraham understood that no matter where you are, God is with you, whether you're in Mesopotamia or Haran or Canaan or Egypt or back in Canaan, whether you're at UVA hospital or you're up at Hollymead or you're overseas, wherever you are, if you are a person of God, if you are part of his people, then he is with you. We see that in Abraham's life. Well, Abraham had a son named Isaac. And Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 sons who became known as the patriarchs of the tribes of Israel. Okay. People like Reuben and Simeon and Gad and all those names that you've seen in the Old Testament. Well, unfortunately, this was a really dysfunctional family. It was an extremely dysfunctional family. Read about it sometime. It is like Jerry Springer worthy. I mean, it's bad. Um, and this family was full of jealousy and strife. Uh, and look at verse nine. This was the result. And the patriarchs of these 12 sons were jealous of Joseph and sold him into Egypt. So Joseph was Jacob's favorite son, and this made the other sons angry, so angry and so jealous that they basically sold their brother Joseph into slavery. They basically uh, performed human trafficking. So they sold Joseph into slavery in Egypt. So all of a sudden, Joseph was ripped out of the only land that he'd ever known. He was ripped out of the only community on the planet that worshiped Yahweh, and he was uh, he became a slave in a powerful pagan culture. So a marginalized, powerless individual in a powerful pagan culture. If there was ever a way to fall off of God's radar, this was it. I mean, this was if there was ever a way to do it, this was it. But look at verse 9 again. And the patriarchs, jealous of Joseph, sold him into Egypt. But God was with him. But God was with him. God was with Joseph. God was there. And God rescued him from his affliction and gave him favor with Pharaoh to the point that Joseph was appointed second in command over all of Egypt. Not only did God rescue Joseph, but God worked through Joseph to save thousands and thousands of lives, including his own family. When there was a huge famine across the whole region and people were dying for lack of food, Joseph had collected food in Egypt because he was a wise man and he brought his family to Egypt and he fed them and he gave them a land to live on. So God was with his people in Canaan, and God was with his people in Egypt. Well, fast forward a couple hundred years, and a new politician takes power. And this politician is unfavorable towards the people of God. This politician is antagonistic towards God's church. He is not pro-church. He is against the people of God. He is threatened by them. And so this Pharaoh, this politician, started to oppress God's people. He subjected them to to harsh slave labor, and he even tried to kill the Israelite children, when they were born. I mean, if there was ever a time that it seemed like God had forgotten his people, that was it, this was it. For hundreds of years, the Israelites suffered under cruel oppression. But then something amazing happened. Look at verse 20. At this time, Moses was born and he was beautiful in God's sights. He's a good looking baby. And he was brought up for three months in his father's house. And when he was exposed Pharaoh's daughter adopted him and brought him up as her own son. And Moses was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So after all of this suffering, God raised up a deliverer for his people named Moses. And God ensured that Moses was kept safe. And when Moses was put out to drift down the Nile River, God, by his sovereign providence, caused the princess of Egypt to find this baby and to think, that's a good-looking baby. I'm taking that baby in. Right? And then Moses was raised in the courts of Pharaoh. And so he received the best education that he could possibly have. You see, God was sovereignly preparing Moses to be his deliverer, to understand the court politics of Egypt, to understand the language not only of the, of the Israelites, but of the Egyptians, to understand leadership of large groups of people, which he would then have to do a lot of. Right, God was preparing Moses to deliver his people. But Moses got ahead of himself. And Moses tried to rescue Israel in his own strength. And in so doing, he killed an Egyptian taskmaster and became a fugitive of the law. And all of a sudden, Moses' courage and charisma was turned into fear and anxiety. And Moses fled from Egypt as a fugitive into Midian, which is the equivalent today of trying to flee the United States to Mexico. I mean, Moses was running for his life. Midian was a place that you tried to disappear and escape your past. And for 40 years... That's what Moses did. And then verse 30. Now when 40 years had passed, an angel appeared to him in the wilderness of Mount Sinai in a flame of fire in a bush. And when Moses saw it, he was amazed at the sight. And as he drew near to look, there came the voice of the Lord. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. So on the backside of a forsaken desert, God appeared to a fallen man in a burning bush. Why? Because God is not the God of a temple. God is not the God of a land. God is the God of a people. So even if you are a fallen man on the backside of a forsaken desert trying to run from your past, God has not forsaken you and God is still with you. And I love how God introduces himself to Moses. He says, I am the God of your fathers. I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. God is the God of a people, not the God of a place, not the God of a program, not the God of a politician, but the God of a people and he is your God. If you are God's people, he is your God. So even if you feel like you're on the backside of Midian trying to forget your past, God has not forgotten you. Just like he didn't forget Moses, he didn't forget you. And if you grew up in church at all, you might know what happened next. God sent Moses back to Egypt and through Moses delivered his people out of Egypt through the Red Sea and through the wilderness. And eventually God established the Israelites in the promised land. Israel took possession of this land that God had promised Abraham all the way back in Genesis chapter 12. They'd finally taken possession of it and years later, a monarchy was established. And the first king was a guy named Saul and he wasn't a very good king. And the second king was a guy named David and he was a great king. And David wanted to build a house for the Lord. He wanted to do something as an act of worship to how incredibly good and gracious God was to his people. But God said, no, you're not gonna get to build it, David. Your son Solomon, he can build me a house. And so when Solomon took the throne, he started a massive construction project that took many years and much, much wealth, and eventually Solomon completed the very first temple of the people of God. This is called the the Solomonic Temple. And this temple was majestic, and it was beautiful, and it was unlike anything the Israelites had ever seen. It was considered one of the wonders of the ancient world. But lest we think that the construction of the temple meant that God was now confined to a building, Stephen interjects in verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet Isaiah says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord, or what is the place of my rest? Here's the big idea of Stephen's whole speech. You ready? God had a people long before God had a building. God had a people long before God had a building. That was Stephen's big point. That was Stephen's response to his accusation. And then Stephen rebuked the crowd in bringing his sermon to a close. Verse 51, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, Jesus, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So Stephen responds to his accusation. He settles his defense with these words. I'm not disrespecting the temple by proclaiming the Messiah. You're disrespecting God by trusting in a building rather than in Christ. I'm not disrespecting the temple by proclaiming the Messiah. You're disrespecting God by trusting in some building for your hope and some situation for your comfort rather than God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. You see, Stephen had the courage to say that, to an antagonistic crowd because Stephen believed the message that he proclaimed, that God was with him in that very moment. Let me ask you, how would your life change if at a deep emotional level you believed this truth? How would your life change if you believed that God was actively with you? Not in some distant sense, not in some sort of, yeah, sure, he's out there all the time, but no, he is actively with me every step of my life? How would it change your attitude at work or in your neighborhood or with your classmates? Would you be more bold in your witness? Would you invite more people to church? Would you take greater steps of faith in generosity or in leadership? And how would it change you? I was listening to a pastor recently who was talking about uh, ways that Christians can bear witness to the gospel uh, right now. And he said one of the most powerful ways that we as Christians can be a witness to the gospel in this world is to be a non-anxious presence in the midst of a world full of chaos. To be a non-anxious presence in the midst of a world full of chaos. Now, that doesn't mean that we aren't wise and prudent, that we don't wash our hands and listen to government officials, but it does mean that we should respond to crisis and we should respond to chaos in a fundamentally different way than our non-Christian friends. We should respond differently than our non-Christian family members. We should respond differently than our non-Christian co-workers. We should be marked by peace and poise in the midst of chaotic circumstances because we know that God is with us. He is not the God of a building, he is the God of a people. And if you have been washed by the blood of Christ, he is your God. And through the Holy Spirit, he is dwelling within you, walking with you, offering to be your comforter and your hope and your strength. Friend, Stephen was a young professional who stood with poise and peace in the midst of chaos because he believed this truth. And if you believe this truth, deep at the heart level, you can stand with that same poise and peace regardless of your circumstances. That's the first thing that we need to believe if we're going to stand firm. Here's the second truth that we need to believe if you're taking notes. Number two, no matter what happens, Christ is waiting for you. No matter what happens, Christ is waiting for you. Look at verse 54 with me. Now when they, the crowd, heard these things that Stephen said, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So this crowd was furious and their their jaws are tight and their fists are clenched and they are ready to attack this young man. But consider how Stephen is described. But he, Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And then Stephen spoke, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Well, this was the last straw for this mob. It pushed them over the edge and they responded in really brutal violence. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed at him. Then they cast him out of the city and they stoned him. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, which means he died. So in this chapter, Stephen became the very first person to die for being a Christian. So Stephen is the world's first Christian martyr. But here's what's remarkable, I think, about this scene. All throughout this scene, Stephen is described as being in total control. He was full of peace. The people who were chaotic, the people who were anxious, the people that were furious and out of control with a crowd. But every time you look at Stephen, every time he is described, he's at peace. He's full of the Holy Spirit. And he's praying for the forgiveness of his attackers. How is that possible? Well, the answer is in verse 55. It says, he gazed into heaven and saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, why is Jesus standing rather than sitting? You see, throughout the New Testament, it says that Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. He's seated because he has finished the work that he came to do. He has paid the penalty of man's sin. He is resurrected from the dead, and he is seated in victory and in power. So why is he described as standing in this moment? Because he's standing for Stephen. He's standing for Stephen. You see, Stephen had been confessing Christ before men, and now he sees Christ stand up to confess him before God. Stephen had been confessing Christ before men, and it seemed like all the power was on the side of the furious, murderous mob. And then in one moment in verse 55, he looks up and he sees the King of Kings, and he sees the Lord of Lords, and he says, true power, stand up to honor him. It's as though Jesus is pointing at Stephen and saying, that one is mine. I have cleansed him by my blood. He is a child of God, and I'm so proud of him. And the glorious one, the one who spoke the world into existence, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who paid the penalty of sin and conquered death, the one who is worthy of all glory and honor and praise, the one who we will praise and worship forever and ever and ever in eternity, got off of his throne and he stood up to honor Stephen. You see, Stephen died full of grace and peace because he knew that Christ was waiting for him. Stephen had peace and poise as he looked around at this chaos situ- situation because he knew his ultimate hope wasn't in this world, it was in the next, and that the, the greatest, most wonderful king that there has ever been was standing to acknowledge him. He knew that no matter what happened, his future was secure. Friends, sometimes you stand firm and God delivers you from sickness, suffering, or persecution. But other times you stand firm and God delivers you through sickness, suffering, and persecution. The truth is that hard things happen in life. And being a Christian doesn't exempt you from them. It doesn't exempt you from the coronavirus. It doesn't exempt you from the stock market tanking. It doesn't exempt you from hardship or suffering or loss in your life. Being a Christian does not guarantee you health, wealth, and prosperity. But being a Christian does give you an anchor. It gives you something firm to stand upon as the world around you is shaking. That foundation is the finished work of Jesus Christ. There are really striking parallels between the death of Stephen and the death of Jesus. In both cases, false witnesses were produced. And the charge was that of blasphemy. In both cases, the execution was accompanied by two prayers. The first for the forgiveness of the executioners, and the second for the reception of the Spirit upon death. The biggest difference is that Jesus died with the full weight of sin upon his shoulders. When Jesus looked towards heaven, he didn't see anyone standing to receive him. All he saw was a dark sky. Because in that terrible moment, God the Father turned his face away from Christ the Son because Christ had become our sin. You see, Jesus faced the cross alone so that you and I never have to face persecution and suffering and death alone. If you are in Christ, then God is with you. And no matter what happens, Christ is waiting for you. You can look toward heaven with confidence that the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords has your name written in his book of life, and he is waiting to stand and welcome you into glory. If we're going to stand firm as a church, if we're going to have poise and peace and confidence as the world is going crazy, if we're going to make a difference in our community, if we're going to be salt and light in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, and with our families, then we have to fix our eyes on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And we have to remind ourselves, like the apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, that our hope is not in this world alone. The gospel certainly gives us hope for this life, but the ultimate thrust of Christianity is that this world is not our home. And that one day Jesus is going to come and he's going to wipe every tear from every eye and he's going to renew the earth and he's going to remove sicknesses like the coronavirus and he's going to remove loss and he's going to remove suffering and the final enemy to be defeated is death and he's going to defeat that enemy and we're going to live with him forever. Friends, if we grasp that at a deep level, if we grasp that, it will empower us to stand firm like Stephen did no matter what comes. Let's pray. Jesus, we, we need you, and we thank you, and we praise you, and we're grateful that because of your work, we can stand firm, and we can have confidence, and we can have poison peace like Stephen, even when our world is chaotic. God, would you give each of us faith to believe that message, not just with our minds, but deeply in our hearts, that we might stand firm and glorify you in this world and look forward to being received by you in the next. We love you. I pray all this in your son's name. Amen. Center Church, love you guys. We'll be in constant contact. And please let us know if there's anything we can do to help. Thanks so much.